I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Replay, powered by digital media. Now here's an interview from the stage of Code Media. I think many of you know who these people are, but we'll, we'll do a brief intro. Um, I could introduce you by name or I could introduce you by business model. Advertising, free content, expensive content plus advertising, expensive content, no advertising. Did I got it right? Sure. Jessica, Dan, John, thanks for coming. Um, so again, this, that's really the broad theme I want to talk about here. You guys have very different approaches to reaching a business audience. So I briefly want to have you sort of explain why you've taken the path you're taking. So Jessica, let's start with you. You used to do what I did for a living. You smartened up. You got out of working journalists and, and became a CEO. But then you said, beyond that, I want to avoid ads altogether. So explain what the information is, how much you charge for it, why you're doing that. Sure. So when I left the Wall Street Journal after eight years as a tech reporter, I wanted to build the next Wall Street Journal with a much more efficient business model uh, and around technology. And so the subscription, I thought, what is the ultimate business model? It's having a differentiated product with great news that other people don't have. It's having an audience that you're very focused on reaching. You're not trying to be all things to all people. And an alignment where your business scales in proportion to delivering value to that audience. And that's a pure and simple subscription business. Since but everyone knows media doesn't work unless you reach massive scale and you get on Facebook. I don't believe, I mean, sure, the, I think the conventional wisdom around that is wrong. I think the most scalable model is to deliver value and to have a brand that people are willing to seek out and not just sort of graze upon through social media. So we're taking a very long-term view. Um, you know, we are small but focused, have insanely loyal very high-quality subscribers that continue to grow um, very, very, very steadily. And so um, it's a different model, but I came at it, to answer your question, from thinking, what's the ideal? Now, sure, it's hard. I mean, it's tough as hell because you have to have information other people don't have. But we're journalists. We think we can train the best journalists. We think we have the best team of journalists. So that's what we're doing. So you're charging how much for a subscription? So we're $400 a year. And, and how many subscriptions have you sold? Uh, many. Come on. Uh, so no, we have thousands of subscribers. Um, Business Insider guessed 2,000, and I said many multiples of that. So I'm, I'm sticking to that. Um, and we're cash flow positive. Um, you know, we're trying not to be. I want to be investing in the business and growing much faster, so we will not be operating at that level. But that's where we are today, um, and we think it's just the beginning. Okay, we'll come back. Dan? Yes. Free, I just gave you some free content last weekend. I yes. gave you some content. You gave me what in return? I mean, we published some stuff on LinkedIn. <laughs> well, I gave you one thing. I'll, I'll challenge your, the assertion that, that this is an advertising game for us. Advertising is a part of it. But huh? really, if you think about what content is for on LinkedIn, it's an engagement uh, part of the business. And if we get people on LinkedIn writing, sharing, connecting with people, they come back tomorrow, they come back throughout the day, and recruiters can then see who they are. People will buy advertising against it. There are a number of different business models on LinkedIn where content is the glue that keeps them all going. Um, but you don't charge anyone to read it? No, absolutely. It's out free. Anyone can read it. You don't have to be a subscriber or a member of LinkedIn to read it. It's all out there. And you're not paying me to give you free content no. or any of your users to give you No, free. no. We give you back a lot of eyeballs on your content. We give you stats on who's looking at them. So when you wrote, you could see that there were, that 20% of your readers were in the tech industry, that 80% of them were, I'm guessing, I, I can't actually see your stats, but 80% of them were in New York. And um, how many were senior leaders? How many were just starting their jobs? So you have people like the CEO of the Mayo Clinic, when he comes on to write, all he wants to do is reach healthcare professionals. So he'll write a post, it'll get 
you know, a half million views, and he can look at his, at his stats and say, oh, I actually didn't reach anyone in healthcare. I got a lot of views, but this was a failure for me. And he goes and tries to recalibrate his, his posts. John, you're somewhere in the middle here. So we've completely and deliberately changed the business model in the sense that we used to be advertising dominated. Now um, most of our revenues come from journalism, from content. But I don't think it's uh, an either or. Um, it's two sides of the same coin. So the more high quality, highly engaged readers we get, the more valuable the advertising proposition is, and particularly with subscriptions. The, uh, the data that you get in terms of being able to understand, articulate, project, and sell that audience becomes much more valuable to advertisers. And alongside that, we've got a physical events business like this. So it's a multi-platform, multi-channel um, business model, um, all based around those sort of premium content and a very strong newsroom. What, what prompted that shift? Um, well, you know, advertising, more of a subscription model. I mean, advertising is a fickle friend. And once you've been through a couple of financial crises and seen advertising literally stop, um, you kind of think that's no way to live. You need a much more sustainable, viable business base. And I think more generally, when you look at what's gone on in terms of the ecosystem and the, the major social media tech platforms, we took a view early on, it's going to be seriously hard to compete with those guys in terms of scale. Um, and we were early to charge. And I remember coming out to the West Coast and being told I just didn't get it. And the internet wanted to be free. It didn't make sense. Um, but when you look at what's happening now, and you look um, in our backyard, you, know, you look at The Guardian, which I think has done a brilliant job in many respects with journalism, they're having to take a lot of cost out because competing on scale um, is really hard when you're up against tech and social media giants, and it's, uh, you're not going to win. Yeah, the Guardian essentially said this whole digital move, which we were out in front of, is, turns out to cost us a lot of money, and we're not seeing any return on it. We've got a real problem. How many subscribers do you, does the FT have? So now we have 780,000 paid-for readers, which is the highest we've had in our history, which is 128 years. So a lot. So that is ramped up. And they're paying roughly how much per year? So premium sub is um, cheap, $500. Um, and uh, standard sub is about 380, 400. So you've got a, a version of Jessica's business, but much bigger, plus advertising. Yeah. Why not, why not just go all the way in and say, look, you're already paying us $400, $500 a year. Let's make it 600 and just take, strip out ads altogether. Uh, one, because we actually make a lot of money from advertising. Two is, um, you know, we, we like ads, and a lot of our readers like ads. I mean, we'll maybe talk about ad blocking later, but there are ads and there are ads, and I think really well done, really beautifully designed ads. You know, we have a big luxury business, supplement business. They're great ads. So, um, you know, we've surveyed our readers, and they're pretty happy with our ads. Uh, let's talk a bit more about your business. You have a new owner. Yeah. Uh, I think this is your first appearance on stage since, yes. since Nikkei purchased you guys last year. Yes, Thanks. I've been in deep deal dive for the past six months. I'm out. This is my coming out after yeah. the deal. Yeah. So what's it like with, with the new bosses? It's really good. Um, and uh, so we've got this new business model um, and a new strategy. What we didn't have um, was funding. We didn't have long-term investment uh, because our previous owners were really prioritizing education. So the previous owner was Pearson, yeah. best known for textbooks at school. So Nikkei is all about news. They believe strongly like us that great journalism can be a great business. They like our global growth strategy. Uh, they're investing in us. They're investing in product, in reach, uh, in video, um, in product, new technology, in data, data analytics, very interested in data analytics. So um, we're feeling pretty good. I think the one thing that surprised me positively um, was, well, I suppose one of the questions I had and one of the concerns I had was, 
you know, the, the perception of Japanese business can be that they're quite slow and quite bureaucratic. Um, this is not the case at all. Um, when you saw how they, with Nikkei, when you saw how they behaved during the transaction, they were pretty decisive and came in hard and fast and big, um, which was great. And since then, I've really seen that they are very willing and able to make fast decisions. And I think in our industry right now, speed is essential. So the ability to act fast, and I think that relates to the other dimension, is this sense of trust in business and relationships. If you're in the zone of trust uh, with a Japanese business as we are and their partners are, you can make big decisions very quickly. So I know it's early, but can you give an example of something that you weren't able to do under the old owners that, that you're doing now? Well, I think the single biggest thing is invest long-term in the business. You know, the problem with being in a public company is you, it's all about quarterly reports. It's all about cost discipline. Don't get me wrong, I believe in cost discipline a lot. But it's being able to make those long-term investments. So what's a long-term investment that you're, you're making today? Well, we've got a five-year business plan. Um, which has been signed and sealed, and providing we hit the numbers, it's fine. Everyone normally says video, video, video. Is, yep. that, is that core for you guys? It's becoming more core because, um, number one, it works really well on mobile. Mobile is now half our traffic. The engagement we get with video and mobile is really high. Number two, it gets around that um, cannibalization risk because our video is free. So it's a really good way of reaching new readers and drives the growth strategy. Uh, and I think thirdly, it opens up new demographics. If you look at our reader cohorts, the sort of the print, which is profitable, doing well, um, tends to be 50 plus. The sort of website more generally, 40 plus. Social media, 30 plus. Uh, we think video is going to be very useful for us in kind of reaching 30 and, and below. You made a, a veiled reference to this. Uh, everyone, including your reporters, thought uh, this summer you were going to be sold to Axel Springer. Uh, instead, <laughs> last minute, Nikkei came and bought you guys. Yeah. Uh, what was that whiplash like internally where you thought you were going to have one set of owners and now you have a different set of owners? Well, I mean, necessarily, it was a very small group of people involved in the deal. And, and frankly, it was amazing how it was kept confidential for so long because we did a lot of very careful work on all of this. Um, I think now people look at the investment strategy, the backing, and just this morning, actually, we've announced with Nikkei we've got a great new headquarters that they've enabled us to find. We probably would have had to move out of London without them. Um, so I think there's a really positive feeling actually around Nikkei and the fact that it's private um, and long term is a big deal. Dan, what, why? You've been at LinkedIn for how long now? Four and a half years. You came out of fortune. You were, you were, you were one of us. You were a writer and Absolutely. editor. Um, what was the pitch that got you there? Because your job didn't exist when you came right. out, right? Yeah. So uh, content was not, didn't really exist on LinkedIn at this point. We were just you went on LinkedIn to look up where someone was working or was looking for work. Exactly. And I used it as a reporter to find ex-employees, single best way to find ex-employees for stories. <clears throat> and um, at the time, I was the editor of Fortune.com. We were building an app that used LinkedIn APIs, and I'd gone out to Mountain View to talk to the folks there. And I was approached soon after that by the CEO who explained that he wanted to bring LinkedIn into content, that the idea of, having, of giving professionals what they need every day to make them better at what they do makes a lot of sense on LinkedIn. And <clears throat> at the time, I was uh, at Fortune struggling with the question of how do we, th there were a lot of discussions about how we had to make the site better. There were, a lot of my day was spent not working on articles, but working with the engineers to try to convince them to build things that we needed to just stay competitive. Um, and I also was seeing that much more of my day was spent pitching stories to other places to host and to bring eyeballs in. And it seemed to me that there was a, that the bet I was making was that a media company could become a tech uh, company and that the opposite might be a better bet, that a tech company figuring out the media game would be interesting, I would learn a lot, and 
uh, you know, I've spent my entire career at business magazines, uh, business newspaper. We were at Forbes together in the early days, fact-checking, uh, started a magazine called Portfolio at Condé Nast. I've always been about business journalism. And the idea of being able to create content and to put it in front of professionals where they were every day throughout the day seemed really attractive. I don't know if you saw Joanna Coles yesterday. She said, oh, the tech companies all say they are interested in content, but they're not interested in content. They're not fundamentally interested in content. Right. I remember talking with you sort of early on in your tenure, and I think you probably would have reached the same conclusion. It was an it was engineering-driven company. I think still is today. How did you learn how to speak their language or vice versa? That's a great question. Um, first of all, it helps me a lot that the CEO is an is a incredible mixture of content-driven and tech-driven. And Jeff Wiener's background is in content and is at media companies. And he is a I mean, tech CEO through and through, but he understands it. And that helped me a lot in the early days. But there were a lot, it was a, I covered tech. I thought I really understood technology. And then I would, and I started at, at LinkedIn and the learning curve was massive. It was massive to the point where I would have conversations with data scientists about what kind of content we should be putting in front of which professionals. And they would say, I would say, this, this article is amazing. We sh this is the one we've got to get out. This one's got to be put in front of a lot of people. And they would say, all right, why is that one good? I'm like, read it. You can tell. Look how great it is. I'm like, yeah, but what about it? What makes you say that? I can't tell it's great. Like, it's a great story. And so then you learn you have to start talking this language. Well, here are, maybe these are the signals we can use to determine if it's good. Maybe it's not. And, and it was a, we have a, a, a belief internally, and it's taken a while for everyone to all um, rally around this idea, but that if you combine editors and algorithms, you come up with something really powerful. Which, so, which, which one wins if there's a fight? Well, uh, there is, it depends. They do two different things. So the editors can vary. I've got a team of about 20 editors around the world. We are, the editors are excellent at doing the very head of the content. Of what, is, what are the big stories? What's breaking? What is not trending yet, but is going to be trending? How can you tell if something's a gem and you, and you know you get in front of the right people? Using their right? eyes and their ears and exactly. their brain and Intuition their gut. Exactly, and, and but the algorithms do a much better job on the long tail. Hmm. We can't ever figure out what are the right stories for, um, you know, I'm not gonna, if I hired an a editor who was an expert in medical devices and could pick the right stories for people who are in the medical device industry, we'd probably do really well in that area. But that's an incredibly expensive proposition of covering the, of covering the world with that. You let the algorithms do it, you start training, and everything we do helps train the algorithms which is both terrifying and also the future and incredibly important to understand. Um, and you hope that they take over more and more of the curation work and you keep moving up the ladder and doing more of the creation and cultivation work. See, I thought when you said long tail, you're gonna be like stuff that was less valuable, we can let the computers figure out. It seems to me like what you're really saying is we can't afford to hire medical device guys, so we'll let the computer take care I'll of give that. You, I'll give you another example. There was a post that did really well in people in the wine and spirits industry. We're, this is about a year and a half ago. We're reading the story about um, in China, they were taking old bottles of wine and actually putting new wine into it so that they could evade taxes. This was a small story written in a wine and trade, a wine trade magazine that none of my editors would have ever seen, and we wouldn't have hired a wine and spirits editor. You're right, that's not the, the economics of it doesn't make sense. But you can see that article does well, and what the editors can do is say, this is a great article, I'm gonna put it in front of everyone, because yes, it's doing well in this small niche, but it's something that I think everyone will do well with. So you try to give it a, a much bigger audience. So Jessica, but this is for all of you guys. Um, 
but particularly for you, right? You have thousands of subscribers, you want more. Uh, the media and tech industry is increasingly moving to a world where Facebook, Instant, Snapchat, there's a lot of big tech platforms that would like you to give it content for free. And Dan they're emails off, me Dan once has a one month of them. asking for... Dan wants your free content, right. and they're offering you this share of revenue, or Dan's yeah, going to get you eyeballs. Um, so you've got a model that says it only works if someone pays. But how are all of you guys interacting with this distributed content world, which was a, a scary novelty a year ago and now is sort of standard? Every, we just hired a, a, a director of platforms. Um, all of us now are saying, well, I, of course we're going to distribute on Apple News, Facebook, Instance, Snapchat, but why, Discover. Right? But we don't exactly know how we're going to make our money yet, but we'll figure yeah. it out. It's definitely going that way. So do you feel like you have to participate in that in some form? Well, so. Any media company, news, anything else, needs to have a loyal audience they have a value proposition for. The media industry doesn't have a business model problem, it has a value proposition problem, right? We've been talking about content like it's all the same, right? But what we write is very different from what Dan's teams are generating and maybe more similar to the FT, hopefully. But so I think the question, that's really important to figure out. So if you don't have an audience that's gonna come to you, game over. Doesn't matter if today you have the best team for Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Oculus, messaging. Get ready for messaging, everyone. We're going to be building bot apps for publishers, right? And so that, I believe, is what you have to do first and foremost. If you have that, these platforms are great tools to helping grow your audience. You, you have a funnel, you can build awareness. Um, and so we do use them for that. But I think. We're but you're not giving Dan enough free content for like. Well, the way I've always approached it is um, if we can understand what drives the numbers we care about, which are subscribers, we'll be aggressive and opportunistic in growing that number. And so um, we've tried a couple partnerships. We've done something with Crunchbase. Um, we're open to many others, but we're really disciplined. Is it helping our goal? Yes. Invest more. If not, don't worry about being a name on a press release that some tech company wants to make with a bunch of big media brands. I, I don't think the media industry should be playing that game. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's very healthy and very exciting. It's healthy because to get it right, and I think this is absolutely the big issue of the moment, and I think a lot of traditional media are kind of really anxious about distributed content. What does it mean? Does it mean disintermediation? Um, I'm actually quite positive and excited about it. It forces you to be very clear about what your comparative advantage is, what makes you special and different. If you're confident about that, then the question is how do you use these platforms and channels to really multiply up your impact? And, you know, it's hard, um, but it's not impossible. And you can see that it works. And when it works well, it's very dynamic. So um, we are free. We're playing with all these channels, experimenting. We're going to be on uh, AMP, uh, in the vanguard of AMP, uh, in articles, et cetera. And we're putting free stuff out there because it's probably the most, one of the most potentially powerful ways of building reach and market. And then you said specifically video, we think, is going to be a free product. Yeah, video is free, so it's, different. so it's either selected articles or it's different formats. But you look at the power of that. So last week we had an exclusive um, from Bloomberg about his um, presidential... It's very F-thinking. odd that Michael Bloomberg announced in the FT uh, that he was considering a U.S. presidential... That makes sense to me, actually. <laughs> I think, you were American uh, I think he was making a point. Um, we're glad he did to us. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the traffic and the reach we got off-site was 10x what we got on-site. And if you think about what that does in terms of introducing the FT brand and content to people we weren't reaching before. So I completely agree. You have to be very close to your loyal readers. Um, you have to have a lock hold on them. But I think, you know, there used to be this idea that sort of 
splendid isolation. I think isolation is stupid. I think that actually you have to be on these platforms and you have to think about how they can really ramp up your, your reach. A few years ago, you had a very prominent platform fight with Apple. Yeah. Back when the iPad had been introduced and there was a big push towards yeah. iPad uh, tablet editions yeah. and there was a whole back and forth with, with Apple and the publishers about subscriptions. Um, and everyone eventually said, all right, we're going to work with Apple under the terms that Apple wants. And you guys were this rare exception. You said, we're going to take our stuff out of iTunes. We're, we're just going to be a web app. Um, what did you learn from that experience, sort of going toe-to-toe with Apple and deciding to go your own way? So number one, um, we, still, we do have some stuff in iTunes. Um, number two, we're not religious about that. And we're, but at the time, you said, we're, we're, yeah. everyone's going this way. We are yeah. going to go off on our own. At the time, it, was, it seemed like, you know, we at are, the time, uh, Apple seemed like it was going to have a much bigger influence in the yeah. media world than it turned out to have. And we are on Apple News um, now. I think what we learned, that there were two core principles that we'd always um, stick to. One is that direct relationship with the reader is absolutely fundamental. Um, we will never be disintermediated from our readers. It's just too important in terms of their behavior, the data, everything. Uh, and that was at risk. Um, and second, and probably less important, was the pricing dimension. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't the primary thing. It was more the direct relationship with the reader. And we still feel very strongly about that. And so I think one of the things we factor in when we're talking to Google, Apple, um, Facebook, et cetera, is what's the data? You know, what's the relationship that we have? And we make decisions influenced by that. Dan, I can't, I can't, I can't jump yeah, in. Yeah, no, I wanted to jump in on the distributed question. I think there's two examples that I would point to as the, as the power of using a distributed model for media companies. One is uh, recently Lena Dunham was just started writing on LinkedIn. She, with, for her Lenny letter, she needs to get subscribers for it and to grow it quickly. And for her, writing an essay on LinkedIn about work-related issues, professional-related issues, and then pushing people to subscribe to Lenny makes total sense. This Do you guys great. reach out to her? Does someone... We reached out to her, yeah. And then sat down. She did an interview. We, we did a, I did a one-on-one interview with her. We talked about it. And now she's regularly writing and sharing on LinkedIn. It's you great to explain see. what LinkedIn was to her? Or oh, she's you know? a hardcore LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> Every day. Yeah, no, I... I uh, she pretended to know. Um, I'm sure she has people who do it for her. Uh, and... Um, and she, but the, the amount of, uh, of interaction she got beneath her article, people saying, oh, I, you know, I, I, I love what you're doing, I'm going to subscribe to Lenny Letter. To her, that was a great, she has to build, it wasn't just marketing because she can't just say subscribe, she has to put herself out there and write about it. Another example is we're hearing constantly and work very closely with book publishers to use LinkedIn as a, what used to be, you know, second serial, it used to be that when you were a publisher, you would try to sell serial rights to a magazine and you would get the first essay out. Now they come to LinkedIn for business books. You publish an original essay or maybe an excerpted essay on, on LinkedIn. And what we hear anecdotally every time is that it turns a book from a, you know, Amazon kind of mid-level to, the best, to one of the best sellers in, in, in business books. So there is this power in using content and getting it in front of people and of then trying to steer the eyeballs to where you want them to go afterwards or in the middle of the piece. And it works. So up until, I can't let you get off stage without asking about this. Up until, up until recently, <laughs> uh, uh, LinkedIn was, was one of the rare recent batch of tech companies that had a successful IPO and kept right. going. Last I looked, you guys were down 55% this year. I think you lost, what, 40% in a, what? In a day? Are you serious? <laughs> i got to check this out. That's what I read. Um, I, know, I know Jeff had a post about it. What is it like, again, that whiplash question internally to sort of go through that in a day, in a week? Right. Um, I'm assuming most people you work with have never experienced a downturn. 
Most of the people <coughs> I work with came from traditional media and have only lived in downturns. So for my team, <laughs> it was not a, uh, a massive, um, it was sort of like, oh yeah, this, is, this, this seems normal. Um, but for the company, it was, you know, Jeff did an a, a incredible job of explaining and other leaders at the company of saying, we're the same company we were yesterday. You know, the market does what the market does, and we feel really good about where the company's going. I have, you know, looking at our roadmap, I am incredibly excited about the company in general, but especially with content, and I can't control. Dark night of the soul, though. Don't you have to think that, that, look, it's a tech company first and foremost. It's a jobs board first and foremost. What we do is important, but it's not the core of what they do. If things go south, I mean, don't you feel that at some point you get closer and closer to the edge of the gangplank? Have you been talking to my therapist? <laughs> um, no, this is a, uh, I think that there is no, content is core to LinkedIn at this point. I mean, this is, we are five years into it. It's, uh, it is built in throughout the, throughout everything that the, the everything that you go on, when you're on the site, you will see posts and shared articles and, um, and encouragement to share yourself and to write throughout everything. And that's just gonna keep growing. And when you hear from people, there was a guy who recently wrote, uh, he was a Berkeley undergrad. He wrote a series of posts about why, about marketing, he's, kind of, he's a marketing undergrad, and he wrote this great piece about why Race Together was a failure for Starbucks. And his posts were picked up everywhere. He was, actually, he was offered a job at Apple in marketing because, and they, the recruiter said, we loved your posts, we love what you're writing, we like how you think, and so we wanted to hire, hire you. And so the idea that you can go back to just being a place for CVs and to say, here's who I am, a static you know, uh, uh, example of everything I've ever done doesn't work. It doesn't work for students. It doesn't work when you're changing your jobs all the time. But explaining how you think is really important for being hired. And so I don't see content ever going away. And I think that the need for the, the editor and algorithmic mix we know works. And so I'm very confident that that will be a long-term future of LinkedIn. Jessica, there was a joke at your expense, a uh, very polite joke, uh, in the College Humor video it's yesterday. Me, yeah, yeah uh, but it's, everyone's brought it up, uh, and John has the same issue, right? So you, you break news, it's literally news no one has, and Business Insider or anyone who can type can repost that news within minutes. There's a competition to see how fast they can post it. So whatever advantage you've provided to your subscriber for $400 a year is gone in, in a minute, two minutes, mm -hmm. 10 minutes. How do you, and it's happened with you guys many times, you break an Apple scoop, Everyone's very excited. And then, you know, the people who are reading about whatever news you've broken on Apple's car plans aren't reading it on the FT. Uh, how do you grapple with that? Well, let's be here. Business Insider will post the part of our story that they think will generate the most clicks for Business Insider, which is not the value of an information story, right? I mean, today we publish investor estimates of revenue growth, like people who are investors in Didi and Uber and Palantir, what they're forecasting for the businesses of these companies, right? I mean, that is an insanely valuable story for people who care about private tech markets. You know, and yesterday, Yahoo, financials, um, that sort of stuff. So Business Insider will take for their audience what they think is a nice snippet to get traffic. And, and you know, there are readers who, for that's gonna be enough, and I think 
Um, I mean, there's an old model of, 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 of newswires, right? Still exists for Reuters right. and Bloomberg, where that is literally the entire value is speed, getting this a couple seconds before somebody else. There's, an ex- there's a, people who pay a lot of money to learn something a few seconds before someone else. Right. But again, it's not, they're not learning the same thing our subscribers are learning. They're not hearing it from the reporters in the trenches. They're not part of our community. Uh, they're not commenting. They're not on our Slack team. Community is a, yeah, be, a big part be, of what we do as well. You've got to be smart about the packaging and the value chain. And you can turn around and use them. They can help get the audience back. You've already thought through what the second, third, and fourth story is, what the video that goes with it, what the stats, what the analysis, what the data visualization is. You suddenly have this sort of huge kind of um, convoy of content um, so they can feed people into that. But it does mean that the newsroom and the news editors have a much different and more difficult job. It's not just about the story. It's about the packaging, the timing, the presentation, the tactics, the strategy. And that yeah, takes it sounds time. relatively easy as you're saying it on yeah. stage. I, I know that, that your writers aren't so sanguine about it. I, there was, one of them was tweeting the other day because Michael Wolf from USA Today was riffing on a FT yeah. scoop. And yeah. the, the story was, well, read about it in the FT instead of the USA Today. Yeah. And, and to a regular reader, they don't even understand that concept, right? They're just going to go wherever the yeah. link is. Yeah. And so, so what do you tell? This is Matt Garahan in this case. But what, yeah. do you, what do you tell your employees about that? <laughs> I'm sure Matt had a point. Um, but then it is like you, you have the second and third impact article. So there's a sort of package. You've, you get stuff from the archive. So you've thought through where you go beyond the immediate story. Uh, and it's, yeah, you can't avoid um, people taking your news and riffing with it. And frankly, providing you've thought it through, thought the branding through, thought the packaging through, you can use it to your advantage. But it does require a lot of thought. And I'll say, I mean, we look at it very closely, right? And um, right now, I think it helps us more than it hurts us. I mean, yeah. our, our growth rate is accelerating, and it's basically all organic at this point. We haven't even really thought through things like marketing yet. I mean, that we're just at that phase now, and, and we you know, we'll we pay get, attention to we it. We get drudged and stuff. We get a nice you know, peak in traffic. It's, it's good. I know you're not going to have a Snapchat Discover uh, channel for, for reasons we've discussed. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has one. Mm-hmm. Does that interest you at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not at the top of our priority list, but, you know, we're pretty open-minded about this stuff. We've just got other things to get through first. Dan, probably, probably no Snapchat for you guys anytime soon. Hey, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, I'll put, put our content anywhere. That makes total sense to me. All right, we'll tell Evan. All right. <laughs> um, let's open up the, the, the audience here. If you've got questions for very, three very smart people, don't be shy. Or slow. <laughs> or, or both. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Chris. I'm from the Weather Channel. Um, I'm curious about personalization. So, Dan, you mentioned that there's a strong role for it in curation. And I'm wondering for a publication like the Financial Times or, or the New York Times or someone trying to do a comprehensive view of the news, is there a role uh, of algorithms and personalization in deciding what's the most important news of the day or in sourcing that news? Like, how do you think, John, about personalization and algorithms? Yeah, so uh, we think a lot and we think it's really important and it's all part of the, well, at the heart of what we're trying to do at the moment is to build engagement and habit. So obviously what's changed big time uh, over recent years is people used to have like one newspaper or two and now it's all exploded and people go everywhere for their content. We've got to recreate that habit. And one of the best ways of recreating that habit is personalization, making it very relevant. Um, and there's lots of ways you can do that. You can understand, um, you can look through the data of their usage patterns, you can recommend articles, you can get gift articles, you can get friends or colleagues or people in the industry to recommend articles. It's a big theme of our um, website redesign, which is ongoing uh, in alpha, coming to beta soon, which is really about personalization and engagement. 
So it's central. Um, it's quite interesting picking up on, on what Dan was saying earlier about the algorithm versus editor. Um, so you know, we do think that there's a big role for data and algorithms, but ultimately the editor would always win, and rightly so at the FT, because that's what people are kind of paying for, it's that experience judgment. But the combination is key. Um, so that's also part of the personalization approach. Question here. Hi, I'm Nina. Such an interesting panel with so many great thoughts about um, distributed media on different platforms. Thank you. Um, Jessica, I used to be um, an internet equity research analyst at JP Morgan, and um, while I understood the closed walled garden model around kind of that data and information set, I never really believed in it. And as that market has sort of begun to contract, um, what you're doing I find really interesting and um, kind of adding a lot of value. Do you plan to go after um, also the institutional market? Because I feel like the stuff that you're writing um, is really valuable to them and is something that they haven't done quite as good a job of covering. Thank you for saying that. Um, so I think there's a sweet spot between traditional equity research and what we kind of think of as reporting, right? If you can bring data, ideally exclusive data, and a framework for understanding a company, and also be able to tell you, here's what's going on with their sales team, this person's leaving, kind of marry that on the ground reporting. To me, that's one of a sort of perfect information story. I mean, there are a couple types of stories, but, but we love that. Agreed. Um, and our team gets very excited about that. We hire reporters who get very excited about those stories. Um, so we focus, we're definitely doing that. I think we can do it more consistently and, and um, make our subscribers just more like a mini franchise within the information subscription around it. Um, Agree. And, and we have um, our subscribers, we are drawing big subscribers from these communities um, and as well in finance. Do you ever think about adding a premium, premium tier? Yeah. When I was sort of working with Henry Blodgett, it's what was then yeah. Silicon Alley Insider, is pre-Lehman, we said, we can just charge hedge funds thousands of dollars, it doesn't mean anything you to them. Can. You know, I don't think that's gonna help us um, get to FT or Wall Street Journal scale, which is ultimately what we wanna be. Um, I mean, I'm also, look, we're very opportunistic. We want to win in this demo at this price point, and then we're going to look at the next one and come up with the next model. I, so I'm sure we will have tiers and all of that over time, but not in the foreseeable future. We want to grow this audience. Corey. Hi, Corey Hike at Mike. Um, great discussion. So I'm seeing a little bit of a sort of um, bifurcation here. So one side of it is, premium content, really deep reporting, direct to consumer, subscriber-driven business, which is one that I think makes a lot of sense, and I think it's great. This, uh, the other side of it, and Dan, your, your comments were really interesting, going to LinkedIn and really getting the insights around delivering content in a more sort of algorithmic, like programmatic, like based on, <laughs> based on like robots, right, and what they actually see and know people are reading. And like, so that's, that's one way to go, the Facebook world, where you're delivering by way of like programmatic insights and you're sort of hitting that. And then maybe content is actually created around that as well. And then this subscriber side of things, which is more high fidelity and like deep reporting, where does that leave everyone else in the middle? Publishers. I think it is a, I think that if you're counting on, <clears throat> on if you're a publisher who thinks that you can just generate a lot of content and do well, it's a very tough world to be in. It, especially because if I think about what you're talking about with LinkedIn is the algorithms are for distribution, but the algorithms aren't creating content. What we have is 400 million 
experts in their particular fields who can write really interesting pieces about what they're seeing every day. Do and you ever use those insights to drive what you're creating? We use the insights to help generate more content, absolutely. So we can yeah. see that something like a year, this is about a year ago now, there were, we noticed a spike in stories about why it's, it's time to quit. And the economy was doing a little bit better and people were saying, all right, now's the time, I'm actually out of this job. And so we, the editor, as, the, as an editor, we said, this is great, these people actually are trying to quit right now. So we started asking some of the experts, you should, be right, you should be quitting. Or even a better example is today, this morning I noticed there are a lot of articles being written about why Apple should be, um, uh, has to work with the FBI or shouldn't work with the FBI on cracking the iPhone. So we'll do two things. Number one, we'll put writing prompts in front of people who are experts in security or who work at Apple or who have been at the FBI because we know their full backgrounds. And we can say, you are an expert in this area. You have worked in these companies um, or you follow them. Why don't you write about your insights about why this works and why it doesn't work? And so you'll end up with 800 stories, let's say, about the iPhone and the FBI case. 20 of them will be okay, you know, 10 will be amazing, and that's that, when you have a big funnel like we have at LinkedIn, that system works. But if you're a, a publisher trying to just generate a lot of content to try to get even more eyeballs, I think it's a difficult position to be in, and being premium seems to make a lot more sense in that world. Jessica, I think I know your answer about where, where, if it's a good place to, if the middle is a good place to be. You know, never want to be in the never middle, want to be ever, in the middle. on anything. John, we will give you the last word. I think, you know, it depends. I mean, an algorithm and data is never going to break a really major scoop. You've got to have that. Equally, we use data and algorithms to reinforce the relevance of what's happening and to actually change the mindset of the newsroom in terms of thinking about relevance and engagement. So I think you've just got to understand where the data and the algorithms fit across the news spectrum. Thanks, all. Um, I would like to continue this conversation, but we are out of time, and the algorithm says we've got to bring on new content. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. 